Alright, we'll start. It's gonna get to like a thousand degrees in here. I think my AC is shut. It's no longer blowing cold air. No. Is it your AC or is it like a building? It's a building thing, but it's, uh, you know, it's happening to me. Iron Brains, a podcast dedicated to uncovering and proudly exemplifying the psychopathic problem of the white mind. My name is Bob, sitting across the way from my good friend and co-host. That's Abe. How you doing tonight, Abe? Doing well, Bob. Yeah, here we are. Lori's here too. How are you doing, Lori? Fine. It was better before I thought we were going to talk about cancel culture and racism again. What are you talking about? You don't know what we're going to talk about. I don't know. Also, why would you expect anything else? Because when people ask what the podcast is about, I say news, politics, and culture. I don't want to say oh, just how, how racism's not actually bad and... And have how I my ever husband said, thinks that. Have I ever said that? No. All but right. that's how it feels. You know what, Laura? You didn't marry just some everyday asshole. You, you married one of the nation's foremost heterodox thinkers. I know. But when I married you, you weren't that. Anyway, tonight is Monday, June 7th, 2021. It's Pride Month here in the States, which always confuses me because then they like there's there's Pride marches all the time. Like the yeah, Pride marches I, at the end of August or or like Labor Day weekend in Atlanta. Like every city's got their own different Pride thing that happens. But I guess June is the is the nationwide deal. I was not aware of that uh, years ago. Me and my friends, all of them guys, uh, we went to Denver just to just hang. And it was in June, and we just noticed after a while, like, wow, there's a lot of gay stuff happening, and maybe Denver's <laughs> just a big, what, you know, uh, gay hang. What sort of gay stuff was so just, just happening? A lot, just a lot of, uh, you know, gay people out and about, and uh, well, there's a running. gentleman over there on the sidewalk corner. He appears to be massaging that other gentleman's <laughs> genital area. Not, Curious. Not, nothing like that. But that's all of the nighttime events were just geared towards, like, gays and lens. So we would just go to, oh, this is fun, you know, whatever. We're, it's totally fine. But I was like, is Denver known for this? It's, you know, <laughs> like, and then they told, somebody's like, no, this is the weekend, man. This is June. Like, this is pride month i was like is it because in atlanta like something happens like in october so like do they have two is there two months dedicated to this or is it just i've never been able to figure it out no it's pride month in june and then also like bob said there's gay pride parades whenever someone feels like throwing okay pride week is different than pride month okay it's a nice little racket but it was fun yeah like it's just fun yeah people were nice Definitely take issue with it, though. I'm not taking any issue. I'm just pointing it out, and it's it's. But it's like if you do word association, it, June would probably have been like the tenth month. I would have guessed. Like I would have worked my way to June. 
like March. Yeah. Well, there's this, like, there's creep. It's too cold in March. There's creep oh, with all of this stuff, though, right? I mean, not to get too into it, but there's something that happens with because uh, we have Black History Month, right? So we have all of February, which is right. dedicated to uh, Black History, and then we've got. And isn't MLK's act? When is MLK's birthday? January. Yeah, MLK's birthday is in January. So then we've got Black History Month, and now we've got Juneteenth, which is also like we have to do all of that. We're also just what do we do exactly on Juneteenth? By the way, June- part of the cultural conversation happens around Juneteenth, right? This, that's a new one over the last few years, right? And then, and the Tulsa riots. We're just getting past the anniversary of the Tulsa riots. We're going to talk about that every year going forward. Juneteenth uh, is a state, it should be like just a Texas holiday, because like the story is that they got around to telling people late in Texas that the war was over and that people were emancipated. So it's like, that's like a good holiday for well, the state of Texas. Well, but shocker of all, Texas is not exactly celebrating right, that's true. But there's liberation no, like, day. If you, if somebody in Maine, you're like, oh, happy Juneteenth, and you explain to them that it's a uniquely Texan holiday... Yeah, but there aren't a lot of black people in Maine. That is also true. <laughs> I was trauma. Anyway, <laughs> I was just pointing out that the there's a way in which this this whole process is sort of creeping, right? And it's becoming a more a more permanent part of the call. I'm not making any judgments here about whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. But this is true of everything, right? There's like donut day and like hamburger yep. day and like this day and that. Every day is a day. There's, uh, there's got to be. Every day is a day. There's got to be some days where nothing is like there, no one wanted like you know. No, June the, 4th no, every day is a day. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now that that very crucial conversation is out of the way, <laughs> I wanted to talk at the top here something something that I'm doing this week is it's the last week of school for the young ones. What's funny is that I've been counting down in my head the days to the end of the school year. I've never seen Bob more excited in my life. <laughs> I mean, I'm not excited. I'm just. Uh, I've never jam- seen you more excited. Jam-packed summer you got planned? That no. was the So that was the thing, is I just realized the other day, I forget, it was probably 7, 10 in the morning, the kids blearily walking into the kitchen, and one of them goes, you know, only 11 more days of school or something like that. And I was like, yeah, we're counting them down, we're excited. And then I was like, yeah, but it's still like three months after that until like school starts again, which is what I'm, which is what I'm actually looking forward to. So I'm, in my head, like psychologically, I've been very excited about the fact that you're not gonna have four kids. Right, it's better. Like it's undeniably, it will be better where I don't have to have my attention devoted for six or seven hours a day to making sure that four kids are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Not just what they're supposed to be doing, like a weird, unnatural thing for them to do. Right. But it hadn't really quite sunk in until just the other day that my life isn't going to get, like, measurably better. (laughs) Still, I still have my own kids I've got to watch and take care of all day, all summer long, until school finally fucking starts again in September. Uh then you'll have a lot more tweets you can read and retweet. And- you get That's to right. sleep in. You're going to get to Twitter. sleep in until 8 o'clock every morning. You're going to exercise whenever you feel oh, like Actually, yeah. I, I think I've decided I'm going to keep the... I won't be getting up at 6 anymore. I've been getting up at 6 to go downstairs and exercise. But I think I'm going to still get up first thing in the morning and go exercise. When... I this is a oh, conversation I, this is for a, a different time. not a conversation we need to have right now. But I exercise at 7. Yeah. 
So, right, so maybe I will. Maybe I'll just keep getting up at six. So then. you're gonna sleep it till eight. I know it. You don't know. Okay. <laughs> Got that rowing machine? The rowing machine is calling my name at, at six okay, o'clock I in the morning every, every other day. day. So that was a good purchase by you two. You guys oh, use it's great. Alone. Rowing machine is great. The only downside is that you can't fucking hear anything when the rowing machine is going because it makes this loud, whirring, white noise sound. The good news is you can't hear anything. It's blowing so. air. So I'm trying to listen to my podcast first thing in the morning. Well, but with the wired headphones, my arms are Get constantly... Get wireless headphones. But God, the... it's Father's Day. I hate wireless headphones. Why? Just they're not as good, first of all. Oh, and they're unreliable. So, so for podcasts, you can I mean you can listen to anything. Look, yeah. I need it in fucking three twenty lossless <laughs> FLAC format so I can hear. So you're I'm saying doing, I'm just that listening. wireless headphones are worse than trying to hear over a rowing machine. No, I'm being ridiculous on purpose <laughs> right now. <laughs> You've seen those like uh, NFL players pregame that are with those obnoxious things, and they're yeah, catching the balls just ones. the same. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Rowing machine is good. I forget what we were talking about. Oh yeah. So the end of the school year, I wanted to get all of the kids a little something. The boys who come over here, just just as like a uh, thanks for coming. <laughs> Wasn't it an awesome year? <laughs> kind of celebration of the end of the year thing we've been reading the chronicles of narnia books i'm going to give them a box set of those so that they can finish reading oh. them themselves nice uh and then i'm also going to give them a board game that they've been playing when they come over here so that they can play it themselves what i'm trying to do is to keep them out of my house obviously <laughs> <laughs> for as long as possible uh, so you know you have no reason to come over here <laughs> i've given right. you all of the fun things that we have here stay over there thank you never again Right. <laughs> uh, lovely children, though. And, and I also want to do something for my kids, in part because uh, if I do something for those kids, then my kids will feel of bad course. because I yeah. didn't do anything for them. Yeah. Calvin has been asking for... Are you familiar with the, the old game? It's a board game called Mancala. It's from Africa, Abe. Mancala. Oh, yeah, my old stomping grounds. No, I am not familiar with uh, this... Mancala. It's just a little, it's a stones or marble game you have. Oh, I know marble games, yes. You have a, a board and you align four stones in one of, or, or in each of 12 little compartments on the board. And then you're trying to achieve a result that ends with you owning more of the stones than your right. opponent does. Okay. So it's very Egypt or Ethiopia, depending on who you talk to. Gotcha. Okay. Neither of those are India. Both of them are Africa. Yeah, you're you were right. Anyway, very simple game, and you can Google it up if you're unfamiliar with it. I've done a poor job of explaining what it looks like, but it's just a, a board with a bunch of little cutouts in it where you can store stones or marbles, and then you move the marbles around the board trying to collect them into your goal. Calvin's been asking for it because he's got a version of it on the Nintendo that he can play, but he wants a, a real-life version, and he's been asking for us to order it on Amazon. And I haven't done it because in my head, like, this is something that I can make. Oh. Just because I have plenty of wood in the basement. I have the, a bunch of tools, none of which necessarily will do the job, but I can make it work. And so that's what I'm working on this week, is trying to get a Moncala set made at home but you, you can go on Amazon right now and look up Moncala. 
And there will be like 100 different options ranging in price from like $8 to like at a maximum, like the, the fanciest one that you can buy will be like $25. Oh, wow. In the meantime, I'm going to spend like 30 or 40 hours trying to make this happen, and it might not even happen anyway, right? Because I'm not particularly proficient do as you, a woodworker. Do you get any joy out of the uh, the exercise? Right. So that's the thing is, no. <laughs> so I don't think you've met Bob. Bob doesn't get joy. Bob gets this like righteousness, this... Yucky! It's like oh, I'm doing the right thing. I am good. It is that Catholic am... thing again. It's not even just Catholic. It's like patriarchy. What? And... Nothing to do with the patriarchy. Not patriarchy, the, but man. like in a good way. Like the the provider of things, like doing the good and putting in work and fruit of my labor. Like he gets off on it. I and... don't think so. I know where you're, where where that where you think that's coming from. I don't think that's it. Okay. So it's not that you don't enjoy it. Uh, it it it's not gonna put you up too much by spending eight bucks or twenty five if you get the fancy one. So what other right? Which is probably like, is and if you buy like a decent one for fifteen dollars, like because the two pieces of nice oak that I'm using down there, I didn't go out and buy them specifically for this project, but I bought them at some point. So all of the materials, not to mention the so-called investment in the tools that I had made years and years ago, the total cost to me is almost certainly going to be higher before you factor in the just insane amount of man hours right. that are going to be required. And yet, for some reason, I have this whatever it is that tells me that I should just make it because it will be it will matter more to the boy or to the kids to have a thing that he knows that I made rather than something that I just ordered on Amazon. Maybe that's, in, maybe that's I mean, insane. But maybe, okay, so do you think if it was an Amazon thing, do you, you think Calvin would just like after six months, like, ah, oh, I'm done with this thing? As opposed he'll, to he'll if do it that came no from matter you? What. Okay, so even if it's like, here, boy, I spent 45 hours on this. He has <laughs> seen him working on it. Right. Okay. So there, there you go. A, so, I think, uh, you know, you'll spend a lot of time, but I'm sure I'll pay off in the future. Yeah. So, but, and it, def <laughs> it, it will almost certainly not be as good as one that I could you just buy. You made me that nice rummy cube set. I made you sit. a rummy cube set. set that we have never used because I was unable or unwilling to figure out how to make racks for the really awesome rummy cube tiles that I fashioned. We could just use the racks we have. No, we can't because they don't fit those racks. Oh, well, you should, instead of making Calvin this thing, you should probably Finish go your work rummy on cube my set thing. from three but Christmases I, was ago. Was it last week or the week before that I talked about how you really don't like completing projects? Yeah. <laughs> it was either last week or the week before. You don't. Yeah, there's some larger thing about where in my head it's just better to make things than it is to buy them. In a way, you're absolutely right. If you it's can. just a yeah. how much better, and the answer is not that much. And the trade-off, yeah, I mean, it is better if you could do it, but if it's something that the price isn't a factor and you're not going to spend – were you joking, by the way? Is it going to take you more than 20 hours or so to do this, or is this like – Oh, it's taking a lot of time. Okay. But – it's not like, like, what the hell else would you be doing during yeah, that time? The answer is looking at Twitter. 
So, like, this is way better than that. I don't yeah. just look at Twitter. I... Okay, what would you be doing besides this? You know, all sorts of things. And, but... and per- perhaps this is going to help you refine your skill, and then yeah. you're going to make more things in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably not. But <laughs> <laughs> No, it is. Every time you do something, you're getting practice. Yeah. Yeah. You're not not enjoying it. It's no... You don't enjoy things, so it's not any better or worse to you than doing the dishes. And besides, Bezos has enough money. Right. Yeah, I don't know. So we might as well go with Lori's explanation because I don't have a very good explanation. Yeah, I'm right. It will be far more meaningful to me than just buying the thing and having it show up in an Amazon box. The fact that I made it and it's corny and it's like, it's not creative or original or interesting in any conceivable way. The only thing that makes it semi-interesting is that I started with two pieces of wood and in my head, I sort of made it up as I went along, and I'm going to finish with a useful thing that does the thing that I want it to do, hmm. which is cool. But, you know, I don't know. I don't have a good way of explaining what I like about that. I've made other things. I made a, the kids have this really, this desk that I sit at all day downstairs. It's so good. Is this, like, highly functional desk. You can It, like, opens up. The whole top of it folds up so that you can do stuff underneath. You didn't make the legs. The legs still look the good, The legs though. I ordered because the more I tried to imagine myself being able to make both a table that opens up like a piano and also fashion legs that don't look like fucking Fred Flintstone made them, I couldn't <laughs> imagine how that was going to happen. But that was a highly satisfying project. There's something about making a thing that I could easily just buy, that I could far easier buy, that that appeals to me for some reason. I don't know what that is. I know what it is. Dude the patriarchy. Instant. It's not the patriarchy. It's your righteousness. It's your feeling superior and better because you've done the right thing. Yeah. It's That's just what it is. It's not a bad thing. It is what it is. Yeah. All right, Abe, let's, let's, uh, let's move on. Let's talk about one of my personal obsessions, which, as you know, is race science. Ooh. Something, I, something that I care a lot about and just want to talk about all the time for no particular <laughs> reason. Wasn't there a thing with uh, the skull size or something back in the day? There used to be a lot of uh, fun science. Yeah. Well, the, the National Football League was in the news this week. And it's uh, it's June, so you know that's not a great thing for the <laughs> National Football League. Uh, headline from The Guardian, NFL families seek to end race norming in $1 billion concussion settlement. To which I said when I first read the headline, uh, pardon? And, <laughs> and what? <laughs> yeah, like what? <laughs> and it turns out that the National Football League was basing their payout structure in that concussion settlement from a few years ago based on how much decline could be clocked in a player's uh, cognitive function, which sounds at, on its surface reasonable, right? Like you have a person and you want to know whether or not playing the sport made them demonstrably dumber and you can prove that, then how much they got dumber perhaps affects how much of a payout they deserve. Uh, You can see that in a sort of purely legalistic and utilitarian sort of way that tries to quantify things like human suffering in dollar amounts, right? It's not ideal, but you can sort of see that the problem 
is that it turns out the National Football League was starting where uh, white players had a higher cognitive baseline than did black players so that a white player could score higher on the declining cognition test and still get money while a black player would score lower and not get any money because his what they considered the baseline for cognitive function in the black player was considerably lower or at least markedly lower right than basically, in the yeah. white player yeah basically it's like the before like the baseline that they're using is based on your group and then the what they're using that to compare it to is your individual results so they're saying the the starting point for the black person is already low so it's harder to demonstrate decline right Whereas, Meanwhile, seventy, I think, percent of NFL players are yeah, black. Right. So this whole thing, like when I first read it, you know, obviously the initial uh, headline, you it, it just reads, oh, this is like one of those racist things. But it, but the more you read it, it seems like so the, the NFL was just trying to get out of paying. Right. But yeah, they were hiding behind the science. Right. So they're they hiding doing. behind the science so that they could <laughs> hiding behind the race science. Yeah, right. by the right. the bad science. They were to... hiding behind the bad racist science. But they were hiding behind that answering the age-old question, would you rather be racist <laughs> or, or rich or greedy? <laughs> but the thing is that they've already set aside the money because it's after a settlement, right? So they've already agreed that uh yeah, it's kind of fu- it's a dangerous thing to do hitting each other in playing football. And so, yeah, uh, a lot of people have these adverse conditions after the fact, dementia and other kind of things, but Hey, you have to prove that the NFL thing did it. So we need a before and after some, some sort of dramatic decline. And right. my question is like, how low is this baseline for black people that a dementia, former black NFL a player is walking into the office and they're like, ah, not, 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 not a big, not a big difference. This is just how you were when you're 18. Like you're like, I mean, if somebody is in their 40s. No, he started off dumber, so yeah. he's fine. <laughs> but from what I gather, if you're, that means if you have some symptoms of somebody who's early onset dementia or whatever in your like 40s or 50s, some lawyerly type from the NFL was trying to make the case that this is not that unlike, it's not unlike how they were when they were 21 years old. Right. Which is kind of a hard argument to make. So it, it seems like they're hiding behind this just so they can save some money. But I'm surprised that they've gone this far. I mean, it's been what, like 10 years or eight years? I don't know how long this settlement thing started, but I'm the surprised. The NFL's very poor. So <laughs> I'm surprised that it's taken this long for it to be a, an issue. Yeah, it is interesting that it took this long to come out. And obviously, it, you would think that this is something that they'll just they'll just change and try to get out of the headlines as quickly as possible. Because what you don't want is six months of stories about how the NFL assumes that its black players are dumber than its white players. Right. And because I'm a, a glutton for punishment, I want to talk about this in terms that are way more uncomfortable than than they already are. This this happened the same week. This story about the NFL happened the same week that I was reading a number of stories that caught my eye and seemed to seem to play into all of this because what the NFL is going to hide behind here is basically the algorithm, right? Ultimately they'll they'll be able to blame this on on someone else. They'll, they'll say, blame it on the scientific community. Yeah, that is, yeah. And what's interesting about that to me is so I read this other piece and this is put aside the question of whether or not 
black NFL players have a lower cognitive baseline than white NFL players. Also, whether or not you could actually determine that in a meaningful way, I imagine that those entry tests, what do they call those those goofy tests that they get? Wonderlick scores? The, yeah, the Wonderlick scores or whatever. I'm sure that there's a, a racial component there in terms of uh, score differentials. And yes. on top of that, I'm sure that people will be happy to explain that away in terms of the test itself being biased in in important ways. Uh, so, so setting aside all of those sorts of questions, there was a story that I saw this week. So this was in Scientific American, and the headline is, Pupil Size is a Marker of Intelligence. The subhead says, There is That's a surprising, so stupid. The surprising correlation between baseline pupil size and several measures of cognitive ability. So this isn't from like 1993 or something before uh, science got woke. This is from from this month, from June of 2021. It's a new study, and it suggests that there is a relationship between the baseline size of a subject's pupils and their ability to perform on various intelligence and cognitive and like puzzle tests. Basically, they, they go completely out of their way to avoid saying IQ tests right. uh, because that's been discredited in the, at least in the popular culture. So that, of course, led me to like try to Google up because I'm a, you know. You were trying to find how big your pupils are. Right. I obviously <laughs> wanted to prove that my pupils are unusually large in their baseline state. Shining lights in your eyes. So I got out uh, my calipers that I keep handy for uh, whenever I'm going to admit guests into my house. Your, <laughs> your dome has to be of a particular size. Uh, no. So I ended up finding, because I wanted to know more about this. So I'm Googling around, I'm Googling around, and I find this other thing, which said that pupil size and iris thickness difference between Asians and Caucasians is a thing. That Asians have a larger pupil size as a baseline than do Caucasians, according to this one study. Now, this was a study that didn't have anything to do with trying to come up with a correlation between pupil size and intelligence, but was instead trying to figure out why Asian persons are at a higher risk for primary angle closure glaucoma than Caucasians are. And they think that there might be some connection between the larger Asian pupil uh, that leads them to be more likely to get this certain kind of glaucoma. Now, what's interesting about that is that Asians also reliably according to most of the IQ literature, score higher than do white people in intelligence testing. Right. And that is borne out by the fact that they also score higher across all sorts of standardized tests, whether it's the SAT or the, the various college entrance exams, and the fact that uh, they're wi widely overrepresented uh, based on their proportion of the population at our nation's uh, colleges and universities, especially the elite ones. I notice that you're not interrupting me as I oh, go no. on and on about my race. You sound science. like you're getting to something. I, uh, when are you, I you're building to something, and this proves that the Asian oh, man is. I don't, I don't want to say anything about and this proves, but it is it is it is an interesting fact to me, and and now I want to. Uh, do the cheap cheating thing and say, let's strip this of all questions of intelligence, right? Let's let's take away all of that stuff and pretend that we're talking about something 
far less emotionally or psychologically or even politically charged than intelligence and pretend we're talking about something much more mundane. So for, for all of the talk that we've endured or, or all of the ways in which we've become woke in the culture and in science and in our politics over the last few years, we're, we're told over and over again by the social scientists that race is a social construct, right? That it's just an entirely right. made up thing that, that anybody who engages in this sort of race science is engaging in something that has a long and terrible history going back to the Nazis, going back to before the Nazis. There's a long history of it in America. We don't need to go to Germany to find people doing bad race science stuff. Uh, it's plenty of it happened here. And so we've been told by the social scientists uh, that there are no actual differences between the races, that it's an entirely social construct. Uh, however, the geneticists generally have had a different story to tell when it comes to that thing, which is that there will be, because of the fact that the races have been largely segregated and evolved in moderately different environments, that like there's a reason why you, Abe, have dark skin and I and Lori... Uh, do not, right? And it's because of uh, tens of thousands of years of natural selection and of, of the fact that your people were in a much sunnier environment than were my people for a very, very long time. And while the, the thing that people love to say, especially the social scientists, they love to say that there will be far more variance within a group than you will find uh, variance between groups, right? So that it's just completely anti-intellectual and asinine to try to make any comparison between groups because of the fact that somebody who's in the 99th percentile in one group and is in the first percentile in that same group, there's far more difference right. between those two ends of the bell curve than there is difference in the median of where the top of that bell curve happens. So you imagine two bell curves uh, lined up side by side. Right. And it, it is true, it is the case that the, the two peaks and the majority of the bell curves will be within one another, but they will be slightly offset, right? right? So that suggests that even though there is more variance within a population, it doesn't change the actual fact that there is still variance from population to population. And if you think about it for just a second, it would be insane if if people who had evolved uh, in completely disparate parts of the world over tens of thousands of years with uh, minimal intermixing didn't have some sort of genetic difference in terms of uh, the whole populations, right? That would be really weird if it wasn't the case. Right. My thinking on this is every anytime these stories come out, the reason why some people get uncomfortable with it is because some people will always take that information so that they can make these statements. Well, this proved A, B, and C. Whereas it is important that you do research on whatever just to see if there's any sort of application for medical purposes or some other reasons. You know, like if somebody has, if one group of people, whether, you know, race-based or whatever, one group of people is more susceptible to this type of drug versus that type of drug, it's important that you figure that out. But if it's if the only utility with these stories is to say Asian people are smarter than white people are smarter than black people are smart, you know, then you get into this situation to where people 
who are of fringe ideologies uh, will say this proves that th this is a lesser group and fuck them and then you get to all the problems we've had in the past. So it's like whenever you do these studies, it's always important just to say what is the utility in this study? Like what are we trying to prove? Because let's say as a group, again, it's not individual people, but as a group, Asian people do better on the these number of tests, you know, the IQ test, the Wonderlic, the LSATs, the SATs, all of these things, they do, you know, a significant number higher than these other groups. How is that important to, like, me, like, in my head? I'm like, okay, next time I see an Asian person, it's going to mean, it, it doesn't mean anything, right? It, right, it means it, as, as something that's basically the same exact thing that I said, was it last week or the week before, my, my fundamental moral law of the universe, right? That nothing that you know about a group can you say about an individual, and right. nothing that you know about an individual can you say right. about the group. Right. They, they live on two different, yeah, two different realities. But, because basically it's like... But we making... are completely incapable of doing that in real life, right? Like, right. But, <laughs> like, but, but, so... you, but remember, uh, like, with the, uh, the, the, you know, now that COVID is over officially... Uh, Back in the COVID era, there were uh, well-meaning types who would uh, fudge the truth or withhold certain things uh, like, because they didn't trust the people with the information. So early on, they would say certain things that they would later disavow, like a Fauci or Walensky or whatever, because the information as presented, if they just told you the tr all of the information they had at the time, then maybe people would take that and run with it in the wrong way. No, that's right. That's what they believed. Right. They believed that they could control the story by controlling the facts and by withholding certain facts. And but and I think I think it's a, a really terrific example that proves the larger point, which is that we will never have control of right. the facts or the narrative. You're never going to stop the worst bad actors from taking empirical truths and turning them into reasons to hate, right? Or turning them into reasons to believe in their own superiority or someone else's inferiority. And that trying to engineer a society that looks the way we want it to look by hiding truth is no path to uh, success in right, that realm. Yeah. Basically, it's like we don't trust the peanut gallery to absorb this information in a responsible way. So let's, you know, not do research that could, you know, you don't know where the research is going to lead to. You know, at some point, maybe there'll be a breakthrough after you look into it for whatever reason. But, like, I think it's it's just important to make a distinction bet between, like, the science and how it's applied to the general population. And that's really where you get into the trouble. Right. And you sent that other article from the New England Journal of Medicine, which is a it's a science journal or a medical journal, rather. Arguably, America's, like, premier medical journal, as far as I know. And that was discussing, and I will put a link in the show notes to this if any of you weirdos want to read the whole thing. It's called Hidden in Plain Sight, Reconsidering the Use of Race Correction in Clinical Algorithms. And it talks about, like, a half a dozen different examples in, in different fields, in obstetrics, in kidney disease, in heart disease research, and the way that these things are, are diagnosed and treated, and the way that the algorithm, which tells the doctor how to determine uh, the course of treatment, can lead to outcomes in which minorities are less likely to get uh, the treatment necessary to improve their health outcomes uh, relative to white people. There was, uh, I think, uh, in, in that 
uh, article they, they, in the part with a kidney. Like basically there's a test for kidney function. And if you were black, they would weigh it to such a point to where you would, in some cases, not be eligible for like a kidney transplant or it has some impact. Uh, there's, some bi- there's some bias in the testing system where they measure ki- kidney function as being they fa- the way that they measure kidney function. For some reason, black people have a higher baseline of kidney function according to the way that they measure according to the way that they measure that, yeah. and and so that a black person who is suffering decreased kidney function wouldn't necessarily be considered to be in as big trouble as a white person suffering kidney uh, decreased kidney function because of the different baselines. It's the same thing as the intelligence thing from the NFL, except in reverse. And so it leads to fewer black people getting dialysis or getting on the transplant list. Right. So the, it seems and like and leads to worse outcomes. Right. But on the other hand, there was a drug that they did a study on, and they found that it had an impact specifically with black people. And so they actually approved the drug for black people, which I don't think I've ever heard of before, where they, they for some reason, just, uh, you know, and, and this was a self-identification type of thing. So maybe it's, you know, last, I think last week we were talking about the, po- the power of positive thinking. Maybe you can positively think your way into being black because they just went off of your self-identity. So you could have had anybody identify as right. black, and this drug apparently works just the same. Right. And, you know, interesting. And there are ways in which those algorithms fail because of the biases uh, built into the system, whether it's the fact that minority individuals have less access to uh, good health care in the first place. And so maybe they get under undercounted in important ways. And so certain disease prevalences are are simply swept under the rug by mistake. So it's it's a perfectly innocent building of the algorithm that leads to compounding negative outcomes for minority people. And now to to draw it to the the last article that made me think of this because there was something I don't remember how I ended up coming across this, but I've heard this before and then it it popped up again for me this week at some point. It's the way that when you're doing insurance pricing that you can build certain things into the insurance pricing algorithm that would seem to have a great deal of moral or ethical problems at their base. And the example is from this, I found this piece on Lemonade.com, which is itself is a, an insurance company, I believe, but like in their blogging section, they had an article about how artificial intelligence algorithms can vanquish bias in the insurance industry. But it's an old example that I've heard before, which is that imagine that a Jewish person wants to get home insurance or fire insurance for their home. And because certain types of Jewish people are more likely to burn candles every Friday night, and then again during uh, the Hanukkah season could go through as many as a couple of hundred candles over the course of a of a Hanukkah season, they will burn far more candles over the course of a year than a Gentile person would. 44 for Hanukkah. Well, Um. but if you have more than one menorah in your house, you know, who knows? The point being that far more candles are being burned in Jewish homes than are being burned in Gentile homes. And we know for a fact that the act of burning candles in the home leads to an increased risk of fire. So then why shouldn't 
Jewish people pay higher insurance rates than non-Jewish people, at least in terms of this one particular factor that goes into the algorithm. Because there's no way to find out who's Jewish. Uh, you can ask. <laughs> yeah, but... But if I'm paying more, why would I want to volunteer that yeah, information? Yeah, like, you know that that's a trick. Also, like, you know, if you get to Jews that... can catch tricks. <laughs> if you get to that level of, of specificity, you're going to run into problems. And, you know, there are acceptable distinctions you can make w- when it comes to insurance and things like that. Like, so, like, age or other things. People Something will, that's quantifiable. Yeah, but people overlook those things. But if you say, okay, boy, the, the young black people smoke a lot of uh, menthol whatevers, and then we're going to do A, B, and C, you're going to have stories and articles. It's not worth making it that specific. So you can standardize it to where you're not going to get a lot of pushback. Like, I don't care how smart this AI technology is. It's just not worth it because at the end of the day, humans have to accept that standard. And a lot of people will just say, no, that's not cool. That's too specific. Okay, but so you're, you're using specificity as a measure here. Nobody bats an eye when a 22-year-old male pays a much higher car insurance rate right. than that, a 22-year-old female does. Yeah, it's quantifiable. Or, or when, I turned, when I turned 25, my best birthday present on my 25th birthday, I opened a letter from State Farm. And it said, congratulations, your insurance cost just went down by like 67% because you're one day older right. now right. than you were before, which was but, absurd. But not just one day. You have to add all those other days that got you to over the top. Sure. Huh? But the point being that I escaped the awful algorithm that said as a 24-year-old, it's going to you're at much higher risk to State Farm than you are as a 25-year-old. Right. But like, that's what – going back to what I was saying, there, there are certain things – and this is just a societal norm – Acceptable distinctions versus unacceptable distinctions. Age is acceptable. People are like, fine, when I'm 25, I'll get the breaks. There's also no gray area about how old someone is. Right. That's also true. Yeah, it's clean. You know, it's clean, clear. It's literally quantifiable. It's a quantity. Right. So I want to read a quote from this from this article because it the the way that I presented it it makes it sound like a, a corny thought experiment. But it's actually More interesting than that. It says, a phase three algorithm that identifies people's proclivity for candle lighting and charges them more for the risk that this penchant actually represents is entirely fair. The fact that such a fondness for candles is unevenly distributed in the population and more highly concentrated among Jews means that, on average, Jews will pay more. It does not mean that people are charged more for being Jewish, right? So... Does that escape your specificity problem enough or, or not at all? That if the algorithm can go so far as to dis- distinguish not Jews as people who should pay more, but candle burners, and then the result of that is that on average Jews will pay more so is this like for a, their a, uh, a, home uh, fire insurance. But is that, like is that just- an acceptable way of breaking it down? So do we – in other words, what I'm asking is do we escape the specificity uh, objection that you raised it- by going far more specific – to the actual individual well, rather than to the group. Well, I will say it's not just specificity, but just like what is an acceptable distinction? And so ethnicity and religion is unacceptable, uh, but you're saying could you do an end run on that, find something else that is neutral, but it applies well, but not, to that but ethnicity. But you're saying you're acting like they're trying to charge the Jews more for home insurance when the fact is the algorithm or the insurance company right. doesn't care that they're Jewish. It just cares that they burn more candles but and are, are therefore likely to burn their but, house but, down but, but more so do, than somebody well, else's. Let me ask you something. How, then how does this – so this only – so it doesn't apply to all Jews. It's just only to the ones – 
Yes. Right. So if you if you find if you if you can find a way if the algorithm can find a way to say, look, we're not going after Jews. This is a it's a Supreme Court question ultimately, right? right. So it's, <laughs> the Supreme Court deals with this all the time. Is is it racist because it has a racist outcome, or is it racist because? Or, or does the yeah. outcome, does the fact that you can point to disparate outcomes make the policy itself racist? Or is it just a coincidence of, of culture? But what is the policy? Right, yeah. What is, I think it's important to distinguish. Like you're, you, is the policy that Jewish people, be, on account of this uh, candle no, the, thing? So no, the, the that's policy, the thing. The that's policy, why it's a not issue. So the way that this blog frames it is that that would be a phase two algorithm. That would right. be a not very good algorithm that right. would say... Oh, Jews burn candles more than Gentiles. We'll just charge Jews more. Obviously, that would be unacceptable. What this algorithm does, the phase three algorithm does, is it is able to identify the candle burners. It's just analyzing the information. Right. Right. So it's if if you have something that will analyze the individual rather than the group, and then come up with a pricing plan that matches the the actual behavior and actions of the individual. Then it doesn't but, matter what the group's doing. But but that you can then point to on the back end that says, but Jews pay 7% more in home insurance but now as a result tr- of this. But it would, that would only be true of the Jewish people who uh, burn— no, 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 because now you can break it down as a group. So Jewish people who burn candles pay 17% more But Jews who don't but do not. Jews but Jews who don't pay no more. But and what Jews, about non-Jews who burn that many candles? They, still they also pay. pay more. So then it, so doesn't, then it matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, yeah. And also— I agree, with, I agree right. with you, but the culture would not accept no, that no, no. as an outcome, It would, right? because you, you can point to—basically say— you, Also, and, Jews and, own the insurance companies. And, and so first like, of all, at, at that point— it's not a Jewish thing. It's just who's using candles thing, right? So, like, except you, that the Supreme Court would say that if the effect to the group, if if the effect is a disparate impact to the group, right, that you can point like that. That is how the Supreme Court would measure this, right? I mean, it depends on the thing. It's, if John Roberts was writing the opinion, probably not. But <laughs> but if the liberal majority were writing the opinion. Then they would say, look, the fact is that the outcome, you can point to the fact that this disproportionately harms people of a certain religious bend, even though nothing about what we put into the algorithm had anything to do with their religion, then it's not an acceptable uh, way of doing business. I I do wonder if this is a good example because like I thought the whole point of insurance that – because this is such – it's such at a granular specific level that I thought the whole point of insurance that you kind of – have a wider risk pool, and and so you want more people. So you're saying the only people that pay this portion of the insurance are people who use candles. It doesn't matter for what purpose, even though a lot of Jewish people do. Right. Use well, it. ultimately, the difference is going to be relatively minimal. Like the, but but that's what that's what matters when you gather these giant risk pools. If I'm paying a hundred bucks and this other guy is paying a hundred and three dollars, right? Then yeah, ultimately the bill isn't that much different, but. Uh, the the pool gets bigger nonetheless, right? Right. I mean, if if they if they, if the policy was specific like that, then the fact that you can say that it overlaps with this uncomfortable fact that it impacts this group more than the other group, I, I think that's not important enough to get rid of that. I, w- I would keep that policy in place because it's a specific enough. Uh, thing. So, but does that does that change when it comes to trying to social engineer outcomes? That we would all agree would be 
better. When, it, when you take it away from something as cut and dry and boring as insurance rates, and you instead step into the question of whether or not blacks, Asians, whites, and Latino people should get into college at precisely, or should get into elite colleges at precisely the representation rate that they exist in in the general population. Like, is that... Well, I think with that, because it's important, I guess a distinction needs to be made, what information is actionable versus what's not actionable. Uh, in the case of, like, test scores and all of these things, you would have to go before... Because I always think that uh, looking at the college admission rates and, uh, you know, Ivy League school demographics uh, kind of misses the point because, like... If all of those different groups had the same experience from kindergarten through 12th grade and then it broke the way that it's breaking, then that would be concerning. Like, So they had the same level of upbringing, same level of education, same level of parental involvement, same level of environment. And then when they got to high school, they this group sucked at the SATs, this group did well in the SAT. Like, then I wouldn't understand why that happens but if people have different backgrounds if they grow up in shittier schools it's natural to think that they're going to have shittier test results when it comes to testing for school for college right so right. a lot of the demographic you know so blacks hispanics they tend to do worse but then they're also at a worse spot when it comes to the when do they do the reading uh, levels like third grade fifth grade they do like these na national kind of like where are you like when it comes to reading and math it's not like they're on par with the other groups, right? So there are right. other and then, factors. And then apply. when they apply to Harvard, all of a sudden only the Asians are getting in, right? Right. No, but so, so basically, this problem starts way earlier, right? And so, like, if you invest in that, like, look at that. So, so I'm gonna. This is where it gets into super uncomfortable territory, right? Because yes, it starts way earlier. We could have the conversation on race from now until the heat death of the universe, right? And none of that is likely uh, to resolve anything. Like the, the fact that I, I heard on NPR just this afternoon that we need to, somebody said we need to have a more honest conversation about race in this country. It's like, what the fuck has been going on here for right. basically my entire adult life <laughs> yeah. if that's not what's been going on, right? right? It's when, pe when people talk about how, well, I wasn't taught that in school. It's like, no, I think you just weren't fucking paying attention during school because... Most of my schooling, any time that we talked about American history, we were talking about slavery, we were talking about the Civil War, we were talking about the civil rights in the 60s, we learned about Jim Crow. Like, I don't know what you're fucking talking about. There are a lot you, uh, if, worse schools uh, than uh, the one that you – there are schools well, sure. that are I'm – not, I'm not denying that but, – but what I'm saying is I just had a fairly normal public education in, yes, yeah, some, some better than average schools, no doubt, and I'm not denying that. In certain parts of this country, it's much harder to get a, a true understanding of American history than the one that that I got. But that doesn't make me a total fucking outlier, right? No, like it, no, but, it doesn't change. But I think there are schools in cities across the country that there is no real, like, rigorous education. It's just, like, I remember when I was in high school, and my school was probably just a shitty school, but it wasn't, like, the worst of the schools, there were a couple of classes where, because I, when I, especially when I transitioned from Canada to the states, which was what year by uh, the way, from like the ninth to tenth, so like ninth. Okay. Oh, so, in the ninth grade in Canada, we were doing things that I didn't get around to until we were, I was a senior here, right? Right. So like, 
it, it, it's like a, like a TV show where like in some countries it's like a few seasons behind, you know, that they don't release. <laughs> That's what it kind of yeah. felt like. It's like, oh, you guys are still on season two on uh, Algebra or whatever, right? <laughs> so it's like, and, and, and there were some certain classes where the, uh, the whole lesson was basically watch like Judge Joe Brown or something and then write about it. Like, just like. <laughs> no, it, you, Bob, Bob, you and I both went to some really fantastic school systems. Yeah, right. and I'm not, so I'm the, not denying that. So those, the people that come out of that, they're going to do shitty when it comes to standardized tests because they're not, they're not teaching them all of the... Because I've kind of had a, a, a mixture of those experiences where it's like, I got to do my homework. And the other one, the, the teachers would just like... Uh, they would just say, let's go over the homework just to fuck with the kids. And they would just say... They would go over the test. So the next day's test, she would go over the day before, and it would take you like 40 seconds to answer all the questions. But most of the kids just were just dicking around. But she would do sure, this but every this time. Is a, this is a cart horse problem too, right? Like, So how much of it was signed and sealed before these kids ever got to the shitty fucking school, right? Right, but, how- but, but aren't most of these things like feeder school? Like you just live there and you just go to elementary school there, you go to high school there. And, and a lot of people, if you look at any of these like real estate apps and look at the, 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 the scores for some of these properties, it's like, you know, they're elementary right, and no, high school. No, I went to, uh, in, in Georgia, I went to a high school that was a nationally recognized Blue Ribbon National School or right. whatever. I, th- I went to what is now the number 14 school district in the country wow right and by the way and yeah i learned a lot about slavery in the intervening years since i left chattahoochee high school that part of georgia in part because of its tremendous school system its asian population has fucking exploded yeah yeah like that 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 part of gwinnett county is now like you get off at the gwinnett place mall exit from 85 and it's like being in a whole other country now Right, uh, and I don't mean that in ne- in a negative right. way. Right. It's just Asian stuff all the way down to Johns Creek, basically. Right. That's great. That's where they went. It's where where they knew that the good schools were. But, but right. So there seems to be some some groups. They're more mobile than others for whatever reasons, where they can just see the trend lines and they say, "Okay, I want to take my kids there." Well, and there. it's a it's a cultural thing of right. like, if I mean that's what my mother always talks about, sort of. So like. If you have Asians and Jews and the most important thing culturally is academic success, you're going to do what it takes to put your children in schools to lead them there. If the most important thing is a hard day's work and buying your own house, then like a school is one way to get there, but it's not the fight and take out loans and do what you have to do to get your kid into the fancy school. Right, right. And so we're all obviously much more comfortable having this conversation at this level when it comes to what we think of as these broad cultural trends or what we think of as uh, the immigrant experience as opposed to the African defendant, uh, descendant of slave experience and what the, what it means to have been black in this country versus what it means to have been somebody who's a, the children of people who did everything in their power to – get the fuck out of a bad situation and bring them here so that they would have more opportunity. That seems to be a conversation that we're sort of willing to have in a way that I think at times condescends to black Americans, that that con- condescends to uh, that culture in a way that, that is unfortunate. Go read John McWhorter on, on that if you're interested, and he can obviously speak to it better than I can. But we are not remotely capable of having the conversation 
in terms of genetic baseline when it comes to intelligence. And I don't mean to say that I have some sort of full handle on the, on the race and intelligence science here, or that it is even something that is worth investigating because it is such, uh, to call it a hot button issue is to like, it, it just, it's not even fair. But you know, the, the, um, the, the, the thing with that though, is like race and ethnicity and other things is basically like a convenient overlapping thing of many other factors, right? So like you wouldn't be able to say really any much beyond like, huh, that's interesting. Other b- besides looking at the specific things that cause it, right? So it's, it's like if uh, which, which on the which on the social and cultural end you can never prove, right? Right. That's the beauty of having it at that level of conversation, a conversation that will never die because it's purely theoretical and 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 hypothetical. It has nothing to do but, with with physical reality. Right. But what I try, I generally try to kind of find something that kind of compares because you're never going to find an exact comparison to this. But I'll, I, you know, for example, the Koreans, right? So you have North Korea and South Korea, right? So. A long time ago, after the war, they had a little war. Not even that long ago. Yeah, like 60, 70, 80 years ago, whatever in terms it was. Of, in terms of human evolution, it's no time whatsoever. And they're inches shorter right. as inches, a population. Yeah. Right. And so, like, that is specific to nutrition, right? So, like, if you can see such Wait, a drastic difference over, like, yes. two generations uh, just on nutrition, if it's nutrition and educational opportunities and just like the environment like you're not cons- you're not worried about getting you know uh all of the other things that happen to you in certain neighborhoods right uh if you just the live dear in- leader isn't going to break out an anti-aircraft gun to to shoot you up on the on the runway right, right. but it, it, it's like if, if it's true when Talk it comes about intergenerational trauma man yeah and you you know <laughs> they pipe in like you know propaganda or f- from what I hear, but if, you, if if that's true in that case, then if you look at America and you see these demographics do differently, if you kind of look into it further, you'll see that it's other causes, right? So it's, it's not, again, like we said at the beginning, it's not saying that because you're Asian, you're smarter. It's, it's basically saying if you're Asian, you're more likely to A, B, and C, and D, and E, and those factors lead you to be in a better position to right, score but higher except, on the test. Except that in a physically determined world, eventually it all does come back to because you're Asian, right? Like, right. So, but, so and, and because, because the difference between nature and nurture is simply a timescale thing, right? That's, what's, that's what we were never really... This is something that's bothered me for years, which is that we were told that the, there's this tension between nature and nurture. When the fact of the matter is, nurture is just what was built into the nature right, of right. your parents right. over the course of hundreds of thousands of years of evolutionary biology. Right. And, to, and to say that those two things are actually different things is to fundamentally misunderstand what it means to be a biological creature. Right. But what, what I guess what I keep on going back to is like, what is it that we're trying to get out of these distinctions at this surface level, right? Because you're not going to be able to make any sort of policy around this, right? You're not going to be able to, you know, you can take a look and see, well, how come, what are the factors that contribute to this group doing better? And then is this absent in these other groups that are not doing as well? And maybe you can kind of come up with policy that way. But just saying, oh, this group does better than this other group. Right. So, so, I, so I agree with you that it's very hard, if not impossible, to design policy, to socially engineer the world in a way 
that will fix all of these problems. By the exact same token, I will say that all of these attempts at socially engineering a world that results in equal outcomes, which is what we're talking about when we talk about equity from a, a certain segment of the population, is just as foolhardy and arguably just as ethically dubious an end goal in terms of building a better world. Right. And, you know, like I said, some people are more interested in like a central casting kind of way where they just want things to – they want the numbers to be, you know, oh, we have this percent of this group. We have this percent of that group. But they don't care how you achieve that. It's just like we just want to make it look like we're inclusive and whatever. By the way, yeah. I I, uh, I will throw this in. I don't know if it's – you know, sometimes you read something and it's uh, – you don't want to like look into it to disprove it because it's such a, a, a fun little thing. Uh, right. I, I read somewhere that uh, redheads apparently need more anesthesia than the general population. They- <laughs> I've, no, I've. Your mom has heard opposite of that actually. They lead, but I've they heard need that less? they bleed more. Okay, they, they bleed more. Yeah, apparently they, they need, yeah knows? they have a higher. They need more anesthesia for the anesthesia to work. Okay, yeah. Okay. But yeah, there's a there's a thing there. Yeah. There's also some weird thing where the more boys that a mother carries to term, the more likely it is that the boys later on in the birth order will be gay. And also, Wait a minute, hold the on. more boys that the mom has, the more likely <laughs> that is the next Abe's one over here that's here doing the boy. math. <laughs> All right, so I'm the fourth of... <laughs> How does this work? But also, yeah. Like no, the... no, but there's nothing you can say about an individual based <laughs> on that right. fact, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Abe's gay is what's going on here. <laughs> no, also, the more... Like, if you have a boy, you're more likely to have another boy. And okay. then you're more likely to have another one even after that. Okay. Just likely. Anyway, yeah. there are all sorts of like – so the larger point is that the better we get at sequencing DNA and figuring out what the genome actually says about the individual, the more of these questions are going to be both right in our face and also something that we just aren't going to want to have to confront or deal with in any way whatsoever. But is this going to be a problem in the future? How far, how far away are we from this designer baby stuff? Can people just say, I want a little bit of this, a little bit of that? All right. So this is unrelated to a lot of what we were just talking about, but also sort of in the neighborhood, I guess. Yale has been in the news a couple times in the last week. Uh, one for that Amy Chua professor. I don't. I, I think that's how you say her name. She's the uh, disciplinarian person. She was the tiger mom yeah. who uh, made a splash in the culture a few years ago talking about being a, a hard-ass parent instead of a, a snowflakey kind of parent. Was she into, like, uh, beating the children or just, like, you know, harsh timeouts and stuff? Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. I am not a tiger mom, so far as I know. <laughs> the other thing that Yale was in the news for was the thing that I referenced at the very top of the show, which is that they hosted a talk uh, that was entitled The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind. This was a psychiatrist from uh, New York City who was visiting... Uh, Yale's graduate child studies program and gave a talk about how racism infects everything, particularly her herself, it seems to me, by any rational reading. My initial thought, uh, before reading the whole thing, uh, I was thinking, is this like a TEDx talk, you know, like some sort of offshoot <laughs> of like an official thing? But then if you, you know, they... they uh, 
included like a, a pamphlet or something, and it's actually from like Yale's like continuing education program thing. So this is like a like something right. that so they approved. Yale, Yale professors could get a continuing education credit for attending this talk, in which this. I mean, we'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. I don't particularly want to go through the whole thing. Uh, the interview that was hosted by uh, uh, Barry Weiss's Substack, uh, which was conducted by Katie Herzog, who's a writer out of Seattle, I think, or Portland, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, was actually really good. And and the interviewer goes to some length to find ways in which she agrees with this person and and trying to sort of understand where she was coming from but there are some there are some quotes here that stand out for being particularly insane and i'll just read them because it's fun not because i really want to talk about them she says this is the cost of talking to white people at all the cost of your own life as they suck you dry there are no good apples out there white people make my blood boil she goes on to say later I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step, like I did the world a fucking favor. Uh, white people are out of their minds and have been for a long time. That's uh, Good. Uh, pot, pot kettle situation there, Good. lady. Could I uh, add something to this? Uh, again, I was trying to give her all, all of the outs, and I guess I'm still trying to give her all the outs. But I was thinking, well, maybe this is one of these like uh, exercises, you know uh, – psychology people they're always into some weird shit like breathing exercises and like chanting and so maybe it was right. one of those in the context she did, so she did frame it as this is not what i want this right. is just a fantasy that i am admitting to right. right she because she's a psychoanalyst she thinks that it's better to be honest and she goes on in the interview to say that she thinks conservatives are better off than liberals when it comes to the race question because conservatives are perfectly willing to be openly hostile and racist to people of color while liberals are pretending anytime anytime a white person says that they're not a racist they're just pretending and failing to acknowledge one's own hatred is a form of perpetuating racism in a way that conservatives literally perpetuating racism apparently is is not as bad well basically she's saying that all white people are racist. Um, those who don't admit it are worse off than the ones that do admit it. So she's saying that conservatives, I guess, are fine being racist. And at least there's the honesty. At least, at least they have that. I feel like over. that's not new. That's, that's not, not new. A new no. thing. You know, so that's the that's that's the old thing about how I'd rather see the redneck who's got the Confederate flag hanging off the back of his truck than the redneck who doesn't, because at least I know where redneck A stands, and I'm not sure where redneck B stands. Right. But what's interesting about uh, this uh, psychologist or whatever they are uh, is that they reach a conclusion, and then if you disagree with it, then you're, you're being defensive, you're not admitting to your... So basically, it's like it's an unfalsifiable claims made against you. And then if you try... There is, there's literally nothing that anyone can say to her that would persuade her that she is wrong in any way. Right. And that's not me making that up. That's what she says, right. that she she cuts black people and other uh, racial groups out of her life as quickly as she cuts white people out of their life the moment that they start to question her narrative, that, if, that, that she will eliminate a black friend just as quickly as she'll drop a white friend 
if that person says, aren't you maybe being a little dramatic here, if they don't just automatically affirm her truth, then she doesn't want anything to do with them. That's not me saying that. That, if you go back and read the interview, that's what she says. Right, because for the other stuff, for some of the stuff she says, it was in a context of like, I'm mad at, you know, I'm just saying things out loud. But when it comes to, I've cut out, white people from my life. That actually is true. And she said uh, there were a couple of white BIPOCs that snuck in. So I guess these are like black people or indigenous is what I stand for or some other type of person of color. But because they probably disagreed with some of her claims, uh, they they get the label of white. Whiteness isn't a skin color. Whiteness is a political ideology or whiteness is a, is a, a framework that has nothing to do with one's skin color. And so a black person can be just as politically white, and she can have she doesn't want anything to do with that person. Right? Can I? You know, uh, I know this is not about her specifically, and uh, this is being unfair to her because I don't know this to be true. Uh, but I will say this because um, there was a couple of parts of the story that I found odd because her whole thing is like white people are oh my god they're a helpless cause they you know everything's blah 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 right and so. She says at some point, uh, ever, she says the following, ever since I was a little kid, since I've interacted with people who are white, and especially white women, I would notice that things were really off. So what I've done by going through psychoanalytic training is literally to work backwards, right? I skipped a part there, but basically she's saying that in her training, uh, she kind of works backwards and so, which kind of fits with all of the other stuff. Basically, she reaches a conclusion. Right. And she, she, has, she has these feelings. These feelings are not to be invalidated. These feelings are exclusively to be validated, right? Right. And so, and so she works in the opposite direction to find the cause. Right. So she, she, she's the one that brought up her childhood experience with whatever, right? And then later on, she keeps on harping on this point, which cannot be... Okay, so she says white people don't eat bread. She makes this declarative statement that white people do <laughs> right. not, which is a weird thing to say about a... White people don't eat... Bread, which is not... Bread. Yeah, bread, yes. Well, there, to, to be fair, there's a thing in the culture in the last few years, starting, I mean, not starting with, but popularized by the Atkins diet, and then we got the whole celiac uh, gluten-free thing that happened in the last few years after that. So she's identifying something that is true in the popular culture. But it's not a white specific. I am one of the whitest people I know, and I eat a slice of bread toasted every morning of my life. Well, there's nothing you can say about the group based on the behavior of an individual. (laughs) It's just she – am I – Right. So so what I'm saying is this is the unfair part. My thinking is that she had a bad experience with a specific person. Who, like this seems to be about one or two people. It's about one lady yeah, who didn't want toast. Yeah, because she seems to <laughs> something yeah. traumatic happened when she was younger. Somebody did something. She's maybe been like one of the few non-whites in the group, and somebody, oh, you're from, yeah, like uh, whatever, some some sort of insensitive comment, you know, a, a poo or some sort of thing. You know, some kids are assholes, right? So they'll say something, right. and then now it's like this is the vengeance time because it is very needlessly provocative, right? You're not winning. I think the the interviewer was like, do you find this really effective? And basically she's like, the people that agree with me <laughs> find that it's effective. So it's like, you're not trying to win over right. anybody. And anybody, that dis- any, anybody that disagrees with her, she doesn't have to deal with right. because they're just perpetuating white supremacy and racism, right? right? So it, it is an entirely, as you said, completely unfalsifiable way of living one's life. Right, but it seems uh, like this is a like a person who hasn't, gone over some issues from the recent past. What I don't understand is 
why the decision-making process at Yale did not suss this out earlier? Because at no point was she dishonest. Well, apparently the talk was fairly well received. But she wasn't uh, dishonest. By, by the people in the room. Right, but she wasn't dishonest in, in what she was going to talk about. It's not like she was like, I'm going to talk about like some bullshit thing from the diagnostics, whatever. And then she veered off course and talked about whitey this and whitey that. It seems like they were aware of the content of her presentation and no one seemed to have noticed. Which, by the way, I'm fine with. I think it's bogus that Yale is trying to cover this up now. Apparently, Yale is not making this available on their website as they normally would. There would be video or at least audio of these sorts of talks available to the public. And if not necessarily always available to the public, then available to people at Yale to go back and watch and listen to. But, you know, the obvious criticism is, uh, yes, you can leave this be or you can have a guest like this, but that opens a door for other similar guests about different groups, right? And it would fall apart immediately. I don't have to make the comparison if you substitute this for that. Right, right. But it's not a sustainable uh, policy, right? Because they they would not invite other people to do something similar to this, right? Right. So no, you you could not get away with the psychopathy of the homosexual right, mind. Right. You uh, couldn't <laughs> do that. So that that's why I don't understand why it's I mean, I know everybody said it's 20 whatever, but it's 2021. None of these fucking idiots at these faculty people or the administrative side, no one gets in front of these issues. Like no one knows that this is going to be a problem. Like, if you believed in, like, hey, we, so, we let so, anyone speak. So to be, to be fair, it's not completely, it is off the deep end of the, of the reservation to mix metaphors here. <laughs> but it's not completely, like, out of, the, out of the ocean from a lot of the other uh, critical race stuff. Like, she's just taking critical race theory to a fairly logical conclusion here. I don't think that she's doing anything new or interesting. She's just doing it in really obscene and awful ways. Right, but this seems to be outside of the norm. I mean, cuz she's first of all So yes, and and this is where this is why we just I just said I didn't want to talk about her specifically and then we spent 20 minutes talking <laughs> about her specifically. It's almost like when you say you don't want to right. talk about something, that's your intro to talking about it. Yeah. But if we if we take a step back and and unspecify this a little bit, this this ties in neatly in a weird way with the ACLU story from over the weekend where the New York Times published a piece by uh, Michael Powell, who's a, a writer for them. And the thesis of the piece is basically that the ACLU is less interested in defending free speech than they would have been a generation ago and that they have refocused some of that energy in a meaningful way on what they would consider to be broader social justice issues and causes with a less absolutist focus on on the first amendment in, which in the past especially like back in the day uh the ACLU would almost i mean they wouldn't do you know they would almost go out of their way to defend uh people who they disagreed with on a personal level like you know like if 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 it was some porn person or some clan member or whatever it may be it's you know they're saying that the uh first amendment is to pr- to protect everyone and so if we can't protect even people we disagree with then it makes the amendment weaker but now it's right. it seems maybe they're making a calculation to where they're saying is 
we don't have the luxury of of that lofty position anymore. Like we need to kind of like rally around causes that are in danger. I wonder if the thinking has changed to where in the past they were like we're principled, and now they're saying we can't afford to be that principled. So we have to actually focus our attention to progressive specific issues. And I don't think that it is remotely controversial. Now I'm not. So of course they also defended the neo Nazis in Charlottesville in 2017. But they got they, a lot of. There was a big pushback on that, right? They're like there was a great deal of pushback uh, because of that, and. To suggest that there wasn't is to tell a weird lie about the current state of the world, right? So this is what I'm talking about where I think these two things are related, which is that after Yell, crazy uh, psychiatrist lady, gives her white psychopathy speech, it's super easy to go online and see people saying things like, uh, well, obviously that's crazy and off the deep end, and that doesn't relate to any of our normal social justice projects that we're interested in. Uh, it's super easy for people to, to to brush that off to the side and say that that's bad, that's not us, that's not what we're after. Right. The same thing with the ACLU thing is that if you – this was immediately glommed onto uh, by the two competing warring factions in the culture war as – on the conservative side, it was as though, uh, you know, the ACLU used to be principled, and now all they care about is social justice stuff, which is simply – it's not true. Also and ridiculous. Also, I mean, th- th- it was – Also, it's absurd because the conservatives for generations, the ACLU has been a uh, – A card-carrying member of the ACLU was a pejorative. It wasn't saying, oh, look at that, uh, a principled person. Like, they, w- they would be against it back then. Right. So, the a- an a-, a Jewish ACLU lawyer was a – caricature that you would use right. if you were a Rush Limbaugh type to make fun of liberals uh, for being weak and soft and only caring about, only caring about stupid things. Right. So for the conservatives all of a sudden to come to the come to lament the uh, the glory the days fall of the, of the ACLU yeah. <laughs> from from its once great heights is is quite rich. Uh, but but putting aside that sort of generalized hypocrisy that pops up any single time you're talking about any sort of divisive news story. The fact that the liberal end of it is being just as disingenuous about this on the other end, which which is they're saying, what are you talking about? Like, there's plenty of free speech work still being done by the ACLU. This is, this is total nonsense. So the merits are immediately ignored in favor of claiming that this is simply right-wingers freaking out about nothing. It's the exact same thing as the cancel culture stuff, which is that people on the left will say either A, yeah, sure, that's one lunatic, but that's not all of us. Or they'll simply say, no, that's not actually happening, right? right. And the, the, the gaslighting thing is a super overplayed term that's largely losing its meaning in the culture. Right. It, it, it will have come and went as a, as a useful tool uh, before we know it. And in fact, it's already happened. But it feels like the liberal intelligentsia are trying to gaslight the rest of us when they say things like nothing has fundamentally changed at the ACLU over the last generation would, when it's ob- it's like screamingly obvious to everyone that it but has but wouldn't you be able to put people who make that claim on the on the spot immediately by asking them was the ACLU right in what they did in Charlottesville or were they in the wrong right cuz i mean that's something that they would have done a generation ago and they still did in 2017 but the current climate would like. I don't think they would do that again. If uh, some other Yahoo ran over somebody, and it was some Klein guy, 
I don't think the ACLU would be first to like offer their services, right? And so if that is now not okay, then there has been a, diff- a shift, right? And, and you're right. What's wrong with just admitting that instead of just pretending everything is the same? You can make the claim that I was saying earlier, maybe just say we don't have the luxury to be that principled. I mean, nobody ever wants to cede ground on principle, so nobody, I guess, would come out and say that. But it, there is a difference between 20, 20, 30, 40 years ago and today. Right, and there's a massive cultural shift happening in terms of what so-called liberals or progressives value, in terms of what matters to these people. And you can, you can, the the free speech issue is right at the very top, which is that a generation ago, free speech was at the was an absolute priority for liberal and progressive groups in terms of what they would defend to their dying breath, uh, both in court and, and just at a, at a cultural level. And that is obviously being reversed. And for prominent members of the liberal intelligentsia to insist that nothing is different feels like a form of trying to tell me that the world is no longer turning in the way that I've always known it to be turning. Right. Maybe they're just like they're going through the process of denial. You know, it's like one of the first uh, steps, you know, you, you, maybe they don't want to admit to themselves that there has been a shift. I think that it is just it, it's a purely cultural war thing because they cannot admit that Ben Shapiro is right about anything. And yeah, it fucking sucks ass when Ben Shapiro is right about something. Uh, but to, to deny that there hasn't been a fundamental shift in priorities when it comes to a, a shift away from traditional uh, liberal appreciation or, or reverence for the First Amendment and freedom of speech in favor of a more, the, this language of equity, I think is to completely deny reality. Now you can argue that that you can argue that it's good. You can argue that it's better this way, or that, as you say, that the priorities uh, have to be moved around. Well, it's, it would think, seem to me that it's not their fault. It's you, a reaction right. to what the right has done. I don't think that they meant to do this. Basically, they have so, a limited re- number of resources, so they have to expend that on these issues they need to put up like these fires bad guys. I mean, that, that would be the, the formulation of an idea like you know hey we need to focus our attention on this imminent threat that's coming from the right and so we can't be i guess it seems to me that a more likely birthplace for all of this is campus culture and i mean you don't have to go far from yale and harvard and the rest of the elite institutions to find I mean, for the last generation. But that's always been there. Yeah, that's always right, been the that, case, hasn't but, it? Yeah. Like, basically, yeah, young, and, young people and are right always now, just critical, like, you know, why are things the way they are? They shake things up and they have a few kids and they get, get a beer. I don't, get, I don't and, think that you can say that the institutions have been the way that they are forever. I think that you, you, you have to acknowledge the extent to which the institutions have been overtaken well, by. That is true. But, I, I think the, the. I mean, Ibram Rex Kendi runs his own fucking portion of the university up there in Boston now, right? And he's got like this whole anti-racist thing, this this the, the the language of equity, the the I mean I hate to even I hate hearing the words come out of my mouth because critical race theory is is currently such a meme on the right. Uh but but to deny that critical theory hasn't had a major impact on academia over the last two generations and to suggest that our elite institutions, that where all of these people have, have came out of the same universities, whether it's the University of Virginia, the old school state institutions that are more liberal than they get credit for, or the, the Ivies or the older smaller schools in the Northeast, however you want to frame it, 
to suggest that somehow that change in academia uh, to a more uh, critical theory lens hasn't had an impact on generation after generation of people who have now ascended to the heights of power in our culture and politics, I think is to deny well, reality. Okay, so I, th- I do think that the administration across all the different schools that are getting to these uh, issues, they're very ill-equipped to handle this. Like, they seem to be not at all aware or capable of making distinction between just anybody making any sort of outlandish claim versus somebody making some sort of substantial claim. There's no process in place to say no to somebody if they make some sort of race or gender charge. They'll just like, oh my God. And it's as as absurd as the Amy Chua situation in Yale this week. Yeah, because there was nothing. I was was reading through, I was like, what exactly do they have her on? They didn't seem to have anything. Some fucking student went out and screenshotted a bunch of text message conversations that he then dressed up as some violation of the rules that apparently don't even exist, and then got her pulled from a teaching assignment because of it. And just based on the smoke, there wasn't really anything there, but the, the the person, the dean or whomever, just were like, "Oh, these are concerning," because you know some of the students on that side were making a lot of noise, and it seems like it's all connected back to her her lending support to Kavanaugh during the hearings. Like it seems like they- right, and so that's the thing. That's the, that's what I mean. It sounds so fucking silly to take this one stupid example of Amy Chua losing a teaching assignment at Yale and possibly uh, having to leave. Uh, the university because of it, because she's obviously no longer welcome there. Like the student body has no interest apparently in being taught by, by this person. And to connect that to some sort of like grander theme in uh, elite institutions over the course of the last couple of generations feels tenuous and silly to do. But at the same time, it speaks to a way in which the inmates are completely running the asylum uh, at these places. Right, but, but that's because the, the people who are in a position to, to, to say yay or nay are just unwilling to just say, you know what, in this specific case, there's no nothing to substantiate the claims and the matter is closed, right? Because like if it seems like they're just kind of accepting the information as if it was like a dossier where a, a student is basically like coercing or just suggesting something improper happened and the person's like, no, everything was fine. You know, like there was no judges there. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, but even so, they were like, oh, this is concerning. These are improper relationships you're having with these uh, students and da 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 but nothing really was there. She ends up, ends up like, I guess, stepping down from her from this uh, class. But it seems like the systems that are in place are just like whatever the person who's complaining the most says is true. Just right, because they're completely beholden to the craziest and uh, loudest voice in the room. Because they're, they're probably completely- concerned that they're going to, you know— they're going to level the charge against them. Like, of course, this white exactly. woman this or is, white man would say no. Yeah. This is moral panic on the smallest scale writ large on the entire culture. Right. right? But what I'm saying, I, mean, I, I think the, 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 the students and all the people that are making all this noise actually don't really have a lot of power. And so, like, if some of the, these people just say, you know, like, there's nothing there, especially now if there's actually something, yeah, don't die on that hill. They might not have, they, they might not have a lot of individual power, but I don't think that you can, like— Oh, I don't think this, the, I think this is just uh, people who just don't seem to know how to respond to these kind of moments. I don't think these students have any real power. No, they don't have a lot of in, they do not have a lot of momentary individual power 
each 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 one of them. Right. But when you consider the fact that they're paying fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year to go to this school yeah. in return, right? So now they're now they are but, cash cows but for these. There's plenty of these cows that we can we we deny people the opportunity to give us more money. But if you fail the test, if you fail the cultural test, and you're no longer uh, able to take in money from alumni over the course of many generations, right. then that cash cow completely ends up running dry because they don't just get them for tuition. Right. But they, do, be, do you, because they, then they send them off to the think tanks and to the big cultural and world-making uh, institutions of this world and expect to continue getting money from them over the course of many generations. But they're nowhere near there. Right, they're not in that position to where that somebody's going to leverage the alumni association to do this, that, or the other. the The closest thing I can compare this to is the same thing with the uh, some of the social media. Uh, so if they don't, if they don't have any of the power, if the corp, the, then then why do the corp? Because where you're going now is to corporate power. No, no, right? no, no, where no, no. Corporations no, no. always. What, what I'm saying is so. Uh, in the ocean, there's uh, what's called like a rip current, rip tide, right? And so if you react. You can drown by you over trying to like fight against the current and doing you know doing something you shouldn't be doing. You should just either just relax or just you know just let it go with the flow and then kind of circle back, right? So there's a way for you to just calmly get out of a situation that that could lead you to drowning if you overreact. And so these deans and these idiots are ooh, what's going on? Something is happening, and they drown because they're it's like if they just allow the process to play out and just expose, like, look, there's really nothing here. Like, we exhausted all of our Except that you've got a generation of kids who say it doesn't matter, that all that matters is my lived experience of this moment. In the same way that that psychopath who gave the speech at Yale says, as soon as you disagree with me, then you— then I get to cut you out of my life because you're not you're not validating my existence. Yeah, and they're being used as an example as a punching line. They have no power. They're just like, look at this idiot, and I can't believe Yale allowed them to give a virtual thing. That's your that's your response to it. What I'm telling you is that there are people who will say it doesn't matter. Chua should be no, fucking you're gone. Right. Because but that that's not a lot of people. Like you you think that they they hold any real power. I think it's like 40% of the culture. No, no. No, that's because all you do is look at Twitter and you don't talk to any actual people. No, you're right. I think it's 40% of the elite culture. I think it's 40% of the 20%. I think think if you did... That's not very many people. I agree. It's not a ton of people, but it's arguably the loudest and most important people in the world right now. But if if they were that loud, more people would know about it. It, They don't. They're only loud at each other. Okay, but all you're telling me is that it doesn't matter no, no, what no, happens no. in the pages of the New York Times. That's, that's no, 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 like, no, no, no. But, that, but what I'm saying, which is, is insane but, to me, and I and I, I will grant you that the Times doesn't have the the sway and the and the the influence that they once had. But it matters what happens in the pages of the, of the New York no, Times. No, it does matter. No, but you're right, Bob. It matters. But I'm I'm talking about how many people uh, subscribe to this thinking. It's a very small number. But the problem is people who are not involved in whatever's happening, they don't want to take part in it because then the attention will be drawn on them. It's almost kind of like a crazy guy on the subway and like, oh, he's bothering them. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything. Nobody's like with whatever the loud guy is saying in the, on the subway, but it's just like they're bothering somebody else. I'm just going to just sit here and do nothing. So if you did like an anonymous kind of like survey of all of the academic people, the professors, you're not running 40% believing in whatever 
this stuff is. You may have like 10%, 15% at most, but it's not a big group. It's just how... So, but then why does it... Then, because people but are... I'm not imagining... I'm not imagining the power of, of that these people wield in the culture, right? It's, it's actually there. That's what I'm why I'm trying to tie it all together with this with the the disingenuousness of of shoving it away as something that doesn't actually matter when you can point to things that are happening right in front of our faces that are having real world impacts to say that none of this actually matters strikes me no, as, as denying reality because well, no one's making that claim I'm saying this is not a popular ideology it's just no one is willing to stand up to it right because they don't want that problem to come to them so they're just saying this will blow over and so i'm not gonna bother with it so but what do you do because i just i don't buy Lori's long-standing idea here which is that if we just stop talking about it all of this is going to go away like i just a lot of it will go away because it's not a popular ideology it's not it's not going it's just just people acting out of some bullshit like it's not going to go anywhere you think that this is going to like take hold and it's going to be – if it was like some sort of like, uh, you know, alluring kind of like, ooh, I kind of like this, you know, way of thinking. But it's just all just rage. Like, oh, the whitey did this or the man have you did met, this. Have you met people? I, <laughs> people I, I All I do is just hang around people. Nobody talks about this. Nobody thinks this way. I swear this is like a internet problem. It's not a real life, at least in my world. The allure, the allure of rage and victimhood to the yeah, that's like an online to thing. The hum, to the human animal cannot be understated. I don't think we don't just have to look at the left and the the out of control students on Yale's campus to know that. You can look at what happened in this country for the last five if years. Those, if one of those like Russian hackers got rid of all the internet for like a week. All these problems will go away. People are going to be like, oh, let's go kick some balls outside. And just- <laughs> I agree. Delete the <laughs> website. play some volleyball. <laughs> yeah, volleyball. Yeah, see, that, that would be the problem. Solver. But I, again, I, I think at, at the current pace we are, this is going to fall on its own. This is not a big uh, thing that's going to rise to any level. There's no group that's going to come out of this. It's just a bunch of random yahoos in these schools. I thought these schools were like rigorous. Like why do they have all this time to like complain and stuff? I thought they were like- This is what they're doing with their Yeah, they don't seem to be doing a lot thing. at Yale. They're thinkers. They're just thinking. They're doing a pretty shitty job at it. You've been listening to Cast Iron Brains, a podcast with Bob and Abe. You can find the show on Facebook or Twitter. Just head on over to brainiron.com to find a show note, any other relevant documentation to tonight's proceedings. Went a little bit long here oh, tonight. Yeah. That surprises me, actually. I'm not going to enjoy the editing process <laughs> on this one. But do you really enjoy anything? <laughs> How dare you? I enjoy a lot of things. The opening and closing themes of the show were composed by Mark Gillig. What did we watch this weekend? Not a whole lot. We, yeah, we didn't watch much. We watched, we played video games. And watched the Braves. Mm-hmm, we watched baseball. Oh, nice. Braves were fun this weekend. They they got blown out on Friday night to the hated Dodgers and then won won the final two games of the series to take the series. I couldn't figure out what I wanted to watch because I'm too excited for In the Heights next weekend. Oh yeah. That's right. That so is coming that's out. That's what we this get weekend. to talk about next week. Oh, oh, oh. I already got tickets for that. <laughs> did you uh <laughs> did you go to the movies this weekend? I went to go anything? see uh uh uh, conjuring two or whatever wow. the devil made me do it. Con- which I'm not conjuring I'm, three or whatever the hell. I've never seen the first two. First of all, this movie uh, it's sad, based on a true story. Now, 
Hollywood uses a based on a true story inspired by true events very loosely, but this is a movie where the devil is involved. So yeah, what part of it was devil. based on a true story? The murder? The part where it was the devil. Please. So not not even 15 minutes ago, you're asking me how are we going to know in the culture when this uh, when this questionable truth value stuff has fully permeated? No, no. I, and now you're telling me you went to a movie this weekend based on a true story where the devil did stuff. That was like the subtitle of the movie, "The Devil Made Me Do It," which sounds like a comedy, but like it said based on a true story. So. I'll get, I'll cut you some slack when it comes to base. You can you know take some artistic license, but it can be the heart of the story. The heart of the story so is the all devil. All you have to do is imagine the entire movie. I haven't even seen it. I don't know what it's about. It's not particularly imagine good. Imagine yeah. the whole movie. Yeah. But like, I assume that there's like supernatural occurrences. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there, people are doing the supernatural things. They're, they're just imagining it. Yeah. But oh, says you. Yeah, no, in it, real life, first people of all, do shitty, weird things, and they try to blame it on somebody else, like the devil. The devil yes. didn't do anything. By the way, uh, I have some inside information on this uh, this Conjuring Three movie. So, Conjuring Three, the devil made me do it. <laughs> that was actually the producer's parenthetical note on signing off on the script, which is that. The devil made him approve The Conjuring 3, and then somehow that got confused as a note about what they wanted the title to be, and so that's how it got appended to the, to the movie title. Uh, my opinion on uh, uh, insanity defenses and devil stuff, I, I would not make for a good judge, because I would up your sentence if you came to me with some bullshit like that. Like, you're responsible for what you do, not the devil. Anyways, it was an okay movie. Oh, ultimately, get the thumbs up. <laughs> They made some good popcorn that day. I don't know. This isn't a good move. Uh, I'm like, oh, whatever, stupid devil. Hey, have you uh, got anything else for us tonight? I do actually, Bob. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. As you know, this month, uh, we talked about it at the top. June is uh, Pride Month here in the United States. What you may not know is that back in 2007, it was revealed that back in the 90s, the Department of Defense considered the development of a so-called, their words, a gay bomb. Now, hear me yes. out. This uh, same program considered many biological weapons, including a bomb that would induce heavy sweating, excessive flatulence, and one that would make local bees angrier and more prone to attack humans. Local but bees? Bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, local. <laughs> Anyways. Go on. <laughs> but, you know... The best idea was obviously the gay bomb, which was still circulating internally as recently as 2000. The plan was to unleash a pheromone, a pheromone, a pheromone bomb onto an unsuspecting enemy force, causing them to become so powerfully homoerotically turned on that they wouldn't be able to help but fall into uncontrollable homosexual behavior, dramatically (laughs) affecting discipline and morale in enemy units. Amazing. I think that's all we've got for tonight, then. And we will talk to you next time. Later. <laughs> Where do you find these things? There's no 40% of the base supporting this and waving their flags. There's no, like, 
uh, legislative effort to like make sure that this uh, lady gets instituted into like there's nothing that's behind it. The problem with the Federalist Society is not that they represent the views of 60% of Americans. The problem with the Federalist Society is that they made sure that a whole bunch of super conservative judges were installed in places of highest influence and that possibly as early as this summer, we're going to have a situation where the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade and abortion is made illegal in this country once again not gonna in at least a dozen or more states, right? So the problem isn't that we have massive amounts of people in in the country who disagree or who have bad ideologies, right? The problem is that we have people at certain levels of institutional power who are willing to overturn many generations of precedent because of their ideological beliefs. And all I'm saying is that if there's going to be a shift in this country away from freedom of speech, separation of church and state, whatever the foundational memes of our country are that have allowed us to continue for 240 years at this point, if that's going to shift to an attempt to dictate outcomes based on these these questions of equity, if social justice is going to take the spot of primacy in most or, or in a, an important number of Americans' lives in our elite institutions, as opposed to uh, civil liberties, as opposed to the things that separated us from other countries uh, in important ways, then I think that that is a fundamental change. And I agree that it's it's amorphous and it's hard to point to, and it's easily dismissed as as sky is falling nonsense, especially because the loudest insane people in the room will be so insane as to say, oh, but the rest of us aren't actually that bad. We don't actually mean that. But to suggest that things aren't changing in important ways in terms of elite opinion, I think, is to to misunderstand what's happening. We'll see if, if the trend continues. But so far, I just think it's isolated incidents and they're fodder for, you know, culture war stuff. But I haven't seen any widespread issue. Like, I mean, you have a couple of schools, but we'll see. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't, right now, I just don't see this as this pressing threat. But are you implying that in the crazy leftist dystopia, we won't be able to have the the, the three of us won't be able to I'm have this conversation. I'm implying that we're already there. So basically, like, it is, it is, it is becoming whole... more difficult to have okay. these sorts of conversations in public than it was ten years ago. And to tell me otherwise is to tell a weird lie about the world. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that I can predict exactly what the dystopian future is coming, and that we're all fucking in for Orwell meets Huxley. But what I am saying is that I. I have noticed a change, and I think that I know what I can attribute it to.